This morning as we study God's Word together, we are going to be talking about Passover. Not because we're Jewish or looking to become Jewish, and not because God wants Christians to adopt Jewish traditions like Passover traditions, but we are going to be talking about Passover because Passover ultimately is designed to show the greatness of the Lord Jesus Messiah, the ultimate Passover lamb. And so if you have a Bible, you can find Matthew chapter 26 or the 26th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. And as we look at this text, and we're studying through this gospel account together, so that's why we are here. Passover is in April, I believe, so it's not because of our calendar or anything like that that we're doing this, but we're studying this gospel account, and we're at Jesus' final Passover, the final Passover that he would celebrate, and it is, I'm going to say, the ultimate Passover, because he's the ultimate Passover lamb. In fact, we could even say, given the fact that God's plan of redemption in Christ was designed before the foundation of the world, that every single Passover that ever occurred throughout the centuries, every single one of them was designed to find culmination, fulfillment. It's designed to anticipate this final Passover, which is rather fascinating to think about. So let's go ahead and begin looking at our text, chapter 26. We'll look at verses 17 to 30. If you're a note taker, I'm going to highlight three ways that Jesus' final Passover shows his greatness. So his final Passover is about his greatness. We'll see three ways that this Passover is about his greatness. Number one, it is now his time. It shows his greatness because it shows it is his time. He's going to say, my time has come. It's his time. It's ultimately his Passover. How about verse 17? Now on the first day of unleavened bread, Mark 14 and Luke 22 tell us that that means that's when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. So on the first day of unleavened bread, when you sacrifice the Passover lamb, let's keep reading, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Where are we going to have this special meal, this this extraordinary, significant, important meal because Passover is an extraordinary, important holiday in the Jewish calendar? Uh, historians tell us that up to some up to maybe even two million people, which is hard to imagine, flood into Jerusalem and the surrounding areas for Passover. This is where you want to go if you're a Jewish kid. You're looking forward to this great holiday and you see your cousins and your friends and it's all the pomp and circumstance, but it's designed to do something. It's designed to commemorate the Passover from Exodus. Now, boys and girls, if your parents ask you about the sermon... And they say, what is Passover? I'm going to give you the answer right now. So you're going to want to pay attention. The Passover is, ready? The Passover. The Passover. So if your parents say, tell me what Passover is. You can say, it's Passover. It's easy to remember. Now, it kind of sounds weird, right? The Passover is when the angel of the Lord passed over. So it's easy to understand. So what happens is when the people of God, the Israelites in the Old Testament, were enslaved, when they were exiled by the Egyptians, God brought his judgment. 
He brought his judgment and the angel of the Lord, the angel of death would come and strike down the firstborn, which is going to be horrific. But if the Jewish families obeyed God and listened to God and his provision providing, they would apply the blood of the lamb in each of their homes. And when the blood was there, it would, the angel of death would pass over. Death wouldn't come. Now, the Egyptians, we could say they're, they're sinners, right? They're definitely sinners. Are, are the Jews who are there in exile, who are enslaved, who are the victims, are they sinners? They're sinners too. They're sinners too. So they need to have a lamb slain, apply the blood as God instructed them, so they wouldn't get what they deserve. The Egyptians are going to get what they deserve. They're going to get death. But to not get what you deserve, you need a lamb, you need a substitute, if you will, so the angel of death doesn't give your family what you deserve and you have the angel passing over. I I want to just read a little bit from Exodus so you can get a feel and flavor for this. But what we need to remember back in our text is Passover is huge. Passover is commemorating the fact that God is a saving God. God is a passing over God. God doesn't always give everybody what they deserve. If you take his provision, his providing way, then there can be mercy, forgiveness, and we don't get what we deserve. Exodus chapter, Exodus 12 says this. I'll just read some, some samplings beginning in verse three. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So already it's four, four. The New Testament emphasizes the four so many times in place of substitution. So it happened once historically, but then let's keep celebrating this every year so that we can remember God's passing over. It says, you shall, and then verse six says, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall Take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Jumping then to uh, verse 11, it says it's the Lord's Passover. So this is his provision. This is something he has done. This is about him being a savior. Verse 12 says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So while it's an angel doing it, it's actually God behind it. Verse 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Passover is about Passover. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Verse 43 says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. Okay, we'll go back to our text now, but I at least wanted you to get a flavor and a sampling of the historic event, and this is to be ongoing every year, and we're celebrating the fact that God didn't give us what we deserved. We're celebrating the fact that God is a saving God. He's a delivering God. He's a God who provides a way of escape, all of that. And now we go back to our text and we remember that Jesus is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, chapter 1, verse 21, which I mention all of the time. 
Oh, ultimate lamb. Ultimate Passover lamb. That's why the Apostle Paul refers to him in those terms in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So with all of that in mind, I, I can't help but read about the Passover and think, Oh, this is significant because let's keep reading. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. And I underlined and emboldened my. It's my time. That sounds really strange if you're just an ordinary Jew. It sounds really strange if you're just another rabbi. But we know that he's not just another one. And so, oh, Passover, my time. Lots of dots getting connected because of who he is. The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So something significant is happening. We know what the something is, but we're already seeing, seeing signs of, of the significance. Mark's account records it this way, Mark 14. The teacher says, where is my guest room? Yeah, it's my time, my guest room. Now, you might notice when you're reading the gospel accounts, it, there is a bit of secrecy. It is kind of strange. Well, I want you to go and I want you to see a person. You're going to see a man and ask the man. There's a little bit of secrecy going on. Maybe we'll come back to that in a little while. Verse 19 says, And the disciples, Luke tells us it's Peter and John, not all of them, but two disciples, did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. It's his time. It's his location. It's his Passover. We know why, because he's going to be the one. He's going to be the lamb. But this is the ultimate Passover. It's his Passover. Now, I mentioned the secrecy. I suppose some of the secrecy is because, and we're reading into it, so let's be honest. I don't want to say this is, this is for sure true. But some of the secrecy might be because Judas had already betrayed him. Judas was looking for the opportunity to have him arrested. But you know what? According to perfect timeline, Jesus needs to have the Passover. And he needs to have the Passover so that he can instruct the disciples, so he can explain these things. And so everything is happening according to a perfect timeline because things need to unfold just so. And that's definitely a theme we see in Matthew's gospel account with Jesus. Things are unfolding just so. Jesus is in charge ultimately. Let's move on to a second way that this emphasizes the greatness of Jesus. It emphasizes his greatness because it's his Passover. But number two, another way is even his betrayal is according to plan. Even his betrayal is according to plan. So he's not at the wrong place at the wrong time. He's not a victim of circumstance. He's not unlucky. He's not just not, he's not just having a bad day. He's a man of destiny and he's in charge. Look what it says in verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I underlined and emboldened, will. Of course. This is how it's going to go down. This is how it's going to be. He's in charge of this. He's sovereign in all of this. Again, not the wrong place at the wrong time. He's at the right place at the right time according to divine design. This is how it's going to be. 
And so this gives an opportunity, this final Passover does, to see the significance and the greatness of Jesus doing things according to a purpose and according to a specific plan. Now, I think we should read verse 20 in a startling kind of way, but lots of us have been Christians long enough and read the Bible enough, we're just thinking about lunch. Right? I mean, think about this. The the most horrific, grotesque crime ever committed in the history of humanity is about to be committed. The execution, the crucifixion of none other than the eternal son become a human being. I mean, this is, this is horrific. This is, this, it doesn't get any worse than this. But I want you to see, this is what will happen. This is unfolding according to plan and purpose. And it's meant to really get our attention. Jesus is in charge of this whole thing. Yes, he's going to be betrayed. Yes, he's going to be executed and crucified. But we actually know, according to other texts, no one is going to take my life from me. To quote Jesus, I will lay it down. So it shouldn't surprise us, but it's meant to be kind of surprising. This is what will happen. I mean, if he knew that this might happen, he should run. He should do anything possible to get out of there. No, this is what will happen because the final Passover gives Jesus, gives us an opportunity to witness the greatness of Jesus like maybe we wouldn't have noticed it otherwise. Remember back in verses 14, 15, and 16, it's already been laid out. It's one of the 12, Judas betrays him, 30 pieces of silver, looking for the opportunity Now Jesus says in our text, verse 21, will betray me. Then verse 22, let's keep moving. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another. So the 12 disciples, is it I, Lord? Verse 23 says, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. At which point in time, Judas chokes on his falafel. That's not in the text. <laughs> I make light of it because I think maybe we're so used to all of this, it's okay to make light of it. Think about how horrific this is and what's happening and how they would have felt. They've been with Jesus. They've witnessed his amazing miracles. They've seen and experienced his compassion and kindness and mercy and generosity. These, these, these are not those disciples, the many disciples in John chapter 6 that heard him teach hard things and left. These are the committed ones. These are the ones who've taken up their cross. Now I'm reading into it a little bit ahead of time. These are the ones who've counted some cost. Because there have been many disciples who've left because it's too hard to be associated with Jesus. These are the ones who seemingly have been tried and tested. And now Jesus says, of the twelve, one of you is going to betray me. It's, it's, it's heinous. It's sinister. It's unthinkable. They're uneasy. He was dipped his hand, verse 23 said, in the dish with me will betray me. It's going to happen. Again, will betray me. 
The culprit is one of the twelve. I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but it, it may not be, it doesn't seem to be readily apparent who it is yet. We have to speculate. It's apparent to Jesus, but to everybody else, is it me? Is it going to be me? Who, which one of us is it? Uh, which causes some Bible scholars to point out the fact that it wouldn't be normal to, to have two, two men to a bowl, okay? Um, they're, ha- they're having this meal together, and there would have been multiple, yes, communal, there would have been multiple bowls. Is, did it say bowl? Dish, sorry. Multiple dishes for dipping. There would have been sharing, but there might have been three. There might have been four. There might have been five. It's, it's not, it doesn't demand that there are six, six and a half. <laughs> it doesn't demand that there are six of them. There's still some mystery involved. He said, I know who it is, the one who used the same dish. He's the one. But th- then they're wondering, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? It's not altogether apparent who it is. They're uneasy about this grave thing that's going to happen. Psalm 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And the psalm is looking forward to this. I know that it is because it's quoted in John 13. So that the scripture is fulfilled, he who ate bread, my bread, has lifted his heel against me. How about verse 24? Let's keep moving. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. So by divine appointment, it's been written of Him to have this happen. He must go. This is according to a predetermined plan, Acts chapter 2. By divine design, He's in charge. He's sovereign. But then notice the contrast in verse 24. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Damn that man is the idea. Woe to that man is the idea. Condemnation upon that man is the idea. So we see both things happening. Sovereign design, purpose and plan. This is so it's fulfilled. But we also do see the evil one by whose hands this is happening. Unthinkable. Horrific. The worst. Now I don't know if you noticed or not. The Son of Man is betrayed. Think about that for a moment. Think about that with a biblically informed mind. Son of Man is betrayed? That is, that, that is terrible. If we remember, Son of Man is a label for Messiah. Son of Man is a label for the one who would rule and reign forever from Daniel chapter 7. I keep mentioning it. I'll keep mentioning it. The the Son of Man is the unique one, the unique Messiah, the unique King. Okay, let's think in terms of Messiahs and Kings. Israel's had plenty of them. If we have the one, the Son of Man, and somebody's going to betray the King, the Son of Man, this is this is horrific. This is this is the worst of the worst of the worst. And I think we're meant to read it that way. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than this. The Son of Man is betrayed? That doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. 
I mean, it's not a good idea to betray a king, but there are kings who are bad actors, so there would be a place for it. It's not very wise. You're probably going to end up in a, in a bad spot if you betray a Messiah. But this one is going to betray the Messiah. Because if he is the Son of Man, he is the Messiah. He's the king. It's no wonder he says, woe to that one. This is, this is unthinkable. This is nonsense. This is backward. This is crazy. Then verse 24 says, and for good reason, it would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. Whew. But the wording from earlier in verse 24 gives us some insight as to why that's true. The ultimate Messiah will deliver his people perfectly, will protect his people perfectly, will provide for his people perfectly. Somebody's going to betray him? Horrible. Unthinkable. Then it says in verse 25, Judas who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, I want you to see, and then we don't read on, and so Jesus quick and ran to Bethlehem. No. Jesus is in charge. Jesus knows Jesus says, this is how it's going to be. And now Judas asks the question and Jesus affirms and Jesus stays. Still somewhat secretive. They don't all know yet. Think about it. Think, think what Peter would have done if he knew right then. I mean, we know he carries, right? He's not the best aim. But we have it on, on good authority, inspired scripture. He's been known to try to stab people before. There's still some secrecy going on. If you're new to the Bible, that's John 18. I don't want you to just take my word for it. Maybe I'll stop now and, and, and just ask you, if the Jesus we're learning about here, who's in charge, who's in control, absolutely in control, absolutely in charge. I wonder, is this the Jesus you know and the Jesus you trust in? I hope it is. But so much of what is sold to us uh, in the name of Jesus is, is quite a lesser Jesus than this and, and isn't really the real Jesus. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to, to think about Jesus in light of who he said he is and how he describes himself and based upon his real historic actions. He's a trustworthy savior. He's the kind of savior who delivers on a lot of levels. He's in charge of all of this. He's doing what he does because he loves sinners. Because he is the one who came to save his people from their sins. And you see here, nothing is going to stop him from giving himself up to be crucified. It encourages me as a Christian. 
To say that, to say that that's the one, that, that he's the one I'm trusting in. He's the one. No one like him. It's no wonder his apostles will say he, he causes all things to work together for good. Makes sense. He can. Look at this. Worthy of worship. Worthy of our devotion and praise. Let's move on now to a third way that the final Passover underscores the greatness of Jesus. And that's because he elevates the Passover. He elevates the Passover. And maybe we start with, before we actually read any further, to elevate the Passover kind of seems impossible. It's the Passover. I mean, what, what, what greater event, right, in, in, in the history of Israel, commemorating the great deliverance, so much so, we're going to do this every year, and now the millions of people, and it's extraordinary, and it's awesome, and amazing, our God saves. Isn't He wonderful? Our God is not like the gods of the Egyptians. Our God provides a way. Our God provides a, a, a Passover. Now we're going to see he elevates the whole thing because he it's his and it's about him. Verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, they're eating the Passover meal. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, get this, in verse 26, Take, eat, this is my body. We have to emphasize that. This is the Passover meal. And he, and he pauses, how does it word it again? And, and after blessing it, which might be an oddity, because usually you would do all the blessing on the front end. So we're having the meal, and now it's after blessing the bread, because something unique and special is going to happen. This isn't like the ordinary Passover, wink, wink, ordinary Passover. No, the extraordinary Passover is going to be extra, 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 a bazillion times extraordinary And what does he say about the bread? He says right there in the text, this is my body. And at that point in time, you say, say what? What, what, what is happening? Now I realize again, we're used to this. So we're, we're, you know, okay, what's for lunch? But it's, it's meant to jump off the page. It's meant to jump off the page of history. This is, it's the Passover and he says, this is my body. What? How do you mean that? What do you mean by what you're saying? Let's read it like we've never read it before. So that we are struck by the oddity, the scandalous oddity that is, if he's just a good teacher, if he's just a rabbi, him saying, this is my body. Then, if we keep reading verse 27, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Matthew doesn't record new covenant, probably because he has a Jewish readership and he doesn't have to say that, but Luke's account certainly does, Luke twenty-two twenty. so I'm going to read it into this. This is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, this is so scandalous if Jesus isn't the Savior. But if he is, this is absolutely amazing. The new covenant in my blood? 
the new covenant is promised in the Old Testament. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 says, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And Jesus is connecting the dots saying, that That's me. Me, as the Passover lamb, as he will be called, I am the substitute, my body given, broken, flesh torn, symbolic, right? All of those things. And not only that, my blood is shed. Blood symbolizes life. Shedding of blood is death. This whole thing ultimately pointing toward, it's about me. And I'm fulfilling the new covenant We're waiting for the new covenant. We're waiting for the new covenant. We're waiting for the new covenant when there's ultimate fulfillment where we don't need the high priests and we don't need priests when we don't need to keep doing Passover sacrifices where we don't need the sacrificial system. We're waiting, 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 waiting for that ultimate one to come and Jesus is saying, it's me. It's absolutely me is what's happening here. I'm fulfilling the new covenant by having these Things happen to me. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So this, this is climactic. He's the deliverer. He's the substitute. He's the ultimate one. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he's our Passover. It's, it's the moment. It's, it's, it's why we say we're Christians. It's why we're happy about Jesus. It's why we talk about Jesus. It's why we preach Christ. He's the mediator of the new covenant. He's the one all of human history has been waiting for, even if they didn't know they were waiting for it. It doesn't get any better. He's the one. He's the one who will save his people from their sins. Maybe in a way they had no idea. Fulfillment of the requirements ultimately found in him. One Theologian made this observation. Many have, but I'm just going to quote one in particular. In Exodus 24, the people swear in response to the law given at Sinai. This is Exodus 24, 3. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They swear under oath, covenantal talk. What God requires, we'll do it. So blood is sprinkled on the people, symbolizing death if you don't. And how did that work out for him? Horrifically. But even then we have anticipation in the old covenant. Human, sinful human beings can't do it. We boast of being able, but we can't. And now Jesus is the covenant mediator, the perfect one, the spotless lamb. When he says in verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, I'm going to make atonement and I'm also going to bring fulfillment because I'm the perfectly faithful one who didn't come to abolish but to fulfill the law. It's absolutely 
staggering what is happening here when it comes to Jesus and what he's doing and what he's fulfilling. He's the one. Think with me, if you would, about covenants, just so we have this in mind. I want to do this every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but usually we don't because there's not time to every time do these things. But this is the the, the, the new covenant in my blood. Covenant is an, an official agreement, a formal agreement. That's the word I was looking for, okay? So marriage is a covenant. So I have a formal relationship with my wife. Thankfully, there's more than just a formal relationship. Uh, but think about it in terms of at a wedding, you have an exchange of gifts, rings in our culture. You have the, the swearing of oaths. That's very covenantal. The rings are actually covenantal. The oaths are covenantal. The witnesses are covenantal. All of those things because it's formal. So a formal agreement, covenant. So here we have Jesus as our covenant head, our representative. He's the one who takes the oath. And he takes the oath on behalf of those he represents. It's for the people, for those who trust in him. And he is going to shed his blood as if he's a covenant violator, but he's not. He's the covenant keeper. He's done everything perfectly on behalf of those he represents. And so when we eat and drink in remembrance of him, this is the new covenant in my blood. We're celebrating the fact that we have a mediator whose sacrifice is sufficient, doesn't need to be repeated, and he's not like all the priests who die. He lives forever, rules forever. I mean, there's so many places to connect the dots and cross the T's and dot the I's. The new covenant in my blood. Oh, the one we were waiting for? Jeremiah 31. Yeah, that one. The one that's different from the old covenant? Yeah, that one. Where we have one perfect mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus? Yeah, that one. The one who fulfills all of the obligations? Yeah, that one. The one who makes atonement for all of our obligation breaking? Yeah, that one. He's the one we've been waiting for all along. This is my blood of the covenant. Other texts like Luke 22 also record him saying, do this in remembrance of me. Matthew doesn't record it, I would assume, because he didn't need to record it because he assumed his readers would all know that he didn't actually mean they were drinking blood and eating flesh. It's doing this in remembrance of me, like 1 Corinthians 11 will say. I don't want to get us too far off track, but since we do love people and are around lots of people who would think otherwise, just remember that none of the disciples thought he was doing transubstantiation. In other words, none of the disciples thought somehow the wine was turning into blood. None of them would have thought that because it's a violation of Old Testament law to drink blood. Jesus is not sinning. And Jesus is not inviting them to sin by drinking blood. They all knew they were drinking wine. But when he says, this is my blood. It's symbolic. There's no question about that. If we just put ourselves in their shoes or their sandals or whatever they were wearing. It's extraordinary. It's awesome. It's amazing what it symbolizes. But it's definitely symbolic. It's symbolizing Him in His greatness as the representative, as the ultimate Passover Lamb. 
Leviticus 17 is the text, by the way, for that. Let's move on now. Ultimate Passover lamb who forgives sins. And then comes bad news and good news. Verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I already let the cat out of the bag, but that's bad news and good news. Why would I say that? Well, it's it's bad news because he's not going to drink with them again. It's bad news because he is going to be crucified and he's going to leave. And no one wants Messiah to leave. If you're believing in Messiah. So this is, this is sad news. But why is it also good news? Because he's going to drink it again, right? Because in his father's kingdom. So it's ultimately optimistic. Maybe it's going to be dark in a certain sense, but in another sense, this is, this is great because he's already assuming victory. He's already talked about crucifixion, but he will be raised. Most certainly he'll be raised. Oh, not only that, he talks about drinking, not in this particular text. Oh, no, yeah, it is in this text. Drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So that's also good news. Not only am I going to be resurrected and ascend, I also one day will drink with you. So my substitutionary work will be successful. You can bank on it spiritually. We'll be together again. Not just post-resurrection on earth, but in my Father's kingdom. This is great. This is gospel promise before the work that secures the salvation is even done yet. But he's sovereign that way, isn't he? You know, how many times did I read verse 29 in my life and just think about something else? You all are a lot more spiritual than I am, I'm sure, but I just didn't really think about it. The obvious so many times ends up being what's so profound. He's going to be crucified. So how's he going to drink again? He's going to be raised. All by himself because he and he alone is Jesus Christ the righteous. No. He also provides us with perfect righteousness. So we're going to be there. Because of him. Because of the new covenant. It's it's extraordinary. Okay, final verse for today. Verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Scholars say more than likely, not for sure, but more than likely, it was Psalm 118 that they sang as a hymn. What would it have been like to have Jesus as your music leader? Some of you who don't sing, I bet would sing. Psalm 118 is a great psalm no matter what. But let's think about what it has to say. I'll read the entire psalm. Psalm 118, it's 29 verses, so you can get comfortable if you need to. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love. Oh, I can't help myself. I'll stop doing this. But his irreversible covenant love, because he's a God who 
swears faithfulness. Okay, I'll stop. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I I just have to remind you, crucifixion's coming. And they're singing this way. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire. Among the thorns, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. It's a great psalm, no matter what. But can you imagine singing it with Jesus? Nothing can stop this from happening no matter what it's going to happen because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I bet they said amen too even if they weren't Baptists when they were done. Extraordinary. Let's pray and then we will celebrate the supper together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have these Words recorded, these actions recorded for us so that we might learn from them. Thank you for the fact that Jesus is mighty to save, willing to save, able to save, wise to save all who trust in him. We know the end of the story. We know he is crucified. We do know that he is raised from the dead. And it is why we name him as our Savior and as our Lord. And so we give you thanks. And we give you thanks for the fact that we're able to eat and drink in remembrance of him, even looking forward to a time when it will be so much more when we are with him in his Father's kingdom. We long for that day. But in the meantime, nourish our souls with the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.